0: that's the problem is that we're framing agriculture as the problem to be solved and we're talking about you know can agriculture be part of the solution when i think agriculture already is part of the solution
1: welcome to elevate the podcast a storytelling and business podcast where we interview and mastermind entrepreneurs in the agricultural western and rural space On Elevate, we deep dive entrepreneurs' stories and share the
2: problems they encountered and opportunities they created as a way to educate, inspire, and encourage the dreamer inside us all. We mastermind business ideas and deep dive topics to deliver tangible advice, useful tools, and bold strategies that we as entrepreneurs can implement to drive our own businesses forward. Created
1: by agriculture for agriculture, Elevate opens the doors for rural, Western, and agricultural entrepreneurs so they can elevate themselves, their businesses, and the lifestyles we all love.
2: Hello, and welcome back to Elevate the Podcast, episode 17. Today we have with us Jack Bobo. We are doing an advocacy interview, which will be exciting because Jack is CEO of Futurity, a food foresight company, as well as the author of the 2021 book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. So Jack, Tar and I have both had the pleasure of hearing you speak, Um, but for all of our listeners who haven't, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit um, before we get started in conversation?
0: Sure. Thank you. And thanks for having me on the podcast. I am currently working as CEO of Futurity, um, but I also have another hat that I'm wearing these days. Uh, About six months ago, I joined the Nature Conservancy as the Director of Global Food and Water Policy and happy to chat a little bit about that as well. But my background, I spent 13 years with the U.S. Department of State working on global food policy, a few years covering Africa, then Asia, then Europe. And so I had an opportunity to work on biotechnology and food security and trade and all sorts of things like that. And now I work with a lot of uh, food companies, uh, farming, uh, ranching, and other organizations, helping them think about what does the future of food look like? Where are consumer trends and attitudes going? And how do organizations get ahead of trends so they don't get run over by them? So looking forward to the conversation today.
1: Yeah, I've had the chance to hear you speak a few times going back even to like 2020, I think. And your conversations around the future of food are just, just, there's just no one else that's talking about it the way you are. You are. There is You have this balance of like sharing the truth, but also highlighting it in a way that makes sense and is also not a negative. And it's one of the things you actually talk about in one of your speeches I've heard is that, you know, how we approach the conversation around food, especially when we like talk with farmers and others that are like coming to the table, is that when we approach it as like blaming someone like you are the problem you're going to have negative conversations around it. Everyone's going to be on the defense. And you talk about how we need to talk, like have farmers be a part of the solution and see how that they can. uh, There's a quote of yours that's agriculture is the largest driver of deforestation. It's also the largest that preserves, you know, forests in around the world. And so I'd love to kind of start with that as how you approach farmers and those conversations, those really tough conversations.
0: Yeah, so it, it's interesting. You know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to talk about controversial topics, and uh, one of the things that I learned is that you know, science at the beginning of conversations often just polarizes the audiences. You know, those who agree with you agree with you more, and those who disagree actually end up disagreeing more. And so finding ways of communicating is just really important in order to, to bring people together. And, and I always tell people my personal mission is to de-escalate this tension in our food system so that we can all get about our business of saving the planet in our own way. And, you know, a lot of people tend to focus on the problems of agriculture. And, you know, there, there are definitely issues of agriculture in terms of land, 40 percent of all the land on Earth you know, is already being used for agriculture and 70% of freshwater goes to agriculture and 80% of deforestation is driven by agriculture. And so, you know, those things are are real challenges, but what people don't do is they don't think about where did we come from? How did we get here and where are we going? And that's the problem is that we're framing agriculture as the problem to be solved. And we're talking about, you know, can agriculture be part of the solution? When I think agriculture already is part of the solution and if we take a historic perspective i think you know that comes into focus and you were alluding to that that if we were farming today with 1960s technology we would need about a billion additional hectares of land in order to feed the world that's more than a quarter of all the forests that exist on the planet today and so those forests only exist because of advances in agricultural practices and agricultural technology and other things. And so I, I think a lot of people in the conservation community you know, forget that agriculture today is wildly more sustainable than it was 30 years ago, and it will be wildly more sustainable 30 years from now than it is today. The challenge is, how do we get to that more sustainable future even faster? Things are not bad and getting worse. They're good and getting better. But not fast enough.
2: You have, so you just ended with one of your, I call them like Jackisms. <laughs> <laughs> you have these little things you say that are really, really powerful. Um, and I wanted to go back to something you said early in your statement, because you were talking about science and trust. And I have, again, heard this kind of jackism where you said, if you lead with science, you will lose with science. And if people don't trust you, the science doesn't matter. And I love that you talk about that, about, you know, focusing on trust and getting people to come together, because you're right, ag is so often positioned as the problem to solve. But if we can kind of have the right conversations, then it's what it needs to be. And it turns into that it's part of the actual solution.
0: Absolutely. We need to to shift from, you know, telling farmers what they should do to telling them what they could do, because I think pretty much everybody out there wants to do better tomorrow than they're doing today. But nobody likes to be told what to do. (laughs) I have two kids and I know that for a fact. (laughs)
2: yes, uh, Tara and I can also attest to that, but that's like, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, But going back to kind of when you were speaking about, you're pretty focused on what I would say is like the productivity side of agriculture. You really believe that to move forward, we need to focus on that, correct?
0: I, I spend a lot of time on it though. You know, my My book and a lot of the work I've been doing with, you know, food companies and others, you know, is on the consumer end of that. And so, you know, over my uh, career, I guess I've moved, you know, away from the farm and closer to the consumer. And I, I like to think that I can help to translate those consumer sentiments back to the fields and the people that are working there.
1: So you've mentioned your book a couple of times, um, and I think Natalie maybe mentioned the title, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. What led you to writing that book and what are like some, you know, the, the big takeaways? What do you get into in that book?
0: Yeah. So what really led me to, to write the book was I have been spending a lot of time over the last decade thinking about sort of how do consumers come to believe what they believe and know what they know and when do people change their minds. And so I, I really was diving into consumer psychology and cognitive science and all of that. And and one of the things that really struck me, though, is why is it at a time when we've never known more about health and nutrition in the history of the planet and we've never had access to healthier foods in a grocery store than ever before as a society we've never been more obese so the things that you would expect to have made things better you know haven't really worked and today 42% of all americans are obese uh, 75% are overweight or obese and if we don't change the direction we're going that'll be 50% by 2030 so you know not very far into the future and so the, the book is my exploration of sort of how our minds work, how our food system has changed over the last 30 or 40 years. And then what would it take to reshape our food environment so that it delivered healthy outcomes as the default so that we could all stop stressing about the food we eat and just get on with enjoying it?
1: Your book to me is like such a, well, your entire background, like I think it's worth noting, like you have a master's degree in environmental science, you have a law degree and then your work in how our brains work around food. It's like such an interesting intersect of like all the things that are kind of coming to like need to come together to have these really important, really like I think with food, agriculture, a lot of times people want it to be simple and it's not simple. It's an extremely complicated system. We talk about this all the time, but it's all of those things. It's like cultural, societal, cost of food, all of those things coming together. And I do think a lot of times that is one of the things that I love about a lot of the things you say is you are bringing in all of those different aspects into the single conversation to look at that larger picture of what the future of our food looks like.
0: Yeah. I I just, I think it's really important because uh you know, by and large, I see a lot of people out there trying to make things better. And I think, you know, often people get painted, you know, with a brush that, you know, they're part of the problem or that they don't care. And, you know, I think that in many ways, you know, it's just a challenge, you know, making our food less expensive is something that we've been asking, you know, farmers and others to do, you know, for 10,000 years. And then, you know, blaming them because food is too cheap, you know, it's, you know, so much for, you know, that success. And I think, understanding, you know, what's really going on, or, you know, we want to blame restaurants for giving us, you know, big portions or cheap food or other things. And, you know, for a restaurant, you know, the most expensive parts of running a restaurant are labor and real estate you know, it's not the food itself. And if consumers come back because you give them big portions, well, that's what you're going to do. And if one restaurant were to decide they were were not going to provide larger portions, then, you know, people just don't come back. And so, you know, we have to figure out how to work within the system we have and based on how consumers actually think and behave in order to fix that system. You know, just blaming people for the outcomes, you know, doesn't really work. Blaming people for a lack of willpower, you know, is just it's not consistent with, you know, how we know things have actually changed over, you know, over time.
2: So without giving too much of your book away, and we will link it in our show notes for everyone who is interested in in purchasing that and ordering or ordering it themselves to to listen or read. Do you kind of go into that? Do you have some ideas of, you know, what we can do to solve these issues in the book that you would want to share or kind of dive into right now?
0: Sure. Well, the the second part of the book, you know, is where I really dive into sort of how did we get here. And, you know, to me, it was just fascinating, the stories that I read. Uh, you know, you know, we all are familiar with supersized portions these days. But, you know, back in the 1960s, there was a guy named David Wallerstein, who was working for a movie theater chain. And his job was to figure out how to get people to eat more popcorn. And, you know, he tried all sorts of deals and uh, to encourage people to do it. And then finally, it occurred to him, well, what if the reason people don't eat more popcorn or don't go back for a second bag is they're embarrassed? You know, they think their neighbors will think they're gluttonous if they do it. And he's the guy who introduced the jumbo-sized popcorn. And of course, the rest is history. Sales of everything <laughs> took off. And then he went to work for a little company you may have heard of called McDonald's. And, you know, it took him a while to convince Ray Kroc to offer a large size fry. But it's, you know, to me, what's shocking is that, you know, it was you know, not until like 1972 when McDonald's thought of offering a large size fry, you know, I mean, th- that's not that long ago. And so much has changed in such a short period of time that, you know, we tend to want to, you know, blame individuals. But, you know, 1978 is when the the big gulp was introduced and the, the first uh, cheesecake factory was established. All three of those things happened uh, out in California, which is, you know, interesting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, we, we think of L.A. and places like that as being, you know, very forward leaning on food. But, you know, we've got the oldest McDonald's in the U.S. in uh, L.A. right now. The first Cheesecake Factory was in Beverly Hills and the first Big Gulp in Orange County just uh, south of there. And so, uh, you know, so a lot has changed. You know, before 1970, obesity in America was actually lower than in most parts of Europe. And today, of course, you know, we it's even hard to imagine that Americans uh, were less obese than most Europeans you know, because we sort of have this vision that's, you know, been uh, changed over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. And so anyway, the the main thing, though, is that our food environment has changed. And so the last third of the book, you know, I asked, well, how do how do we change that? And a lot of it has to do not with the individual choices. Yes, we should not shop when, you know, when we're hungry, we should go to the store with a shopping list, we should not buy sna- snacks if we're not going to be able to keep from eating them. So there are lots of individual behaviors. But, you know back in you know 1960 our our parents or grandparents they weren't thinking hard and counting calories you know they just had a food environment that delivered healthier outcomes you know they were cooking with lard <laughs> and yet somehow nobody was obese and so that's you know my interest and vision for the future is you know how do we begin to Work with restaurants and others to shape the offerings that they have to just help us to to make healthier choices. How do we change societal demands so that we choose restaurants that give us appropriate portions? You know, eating two me- or getting two meals for the price of one is good value. Eating two meals for the price of one, not so much. <laughs> and so, you know, what are the things that we can do as a society to? you know, just help make it easier for people to bring that, you know, joy of food back and remove that uh, level of stress that I think many people approach food with today.
2: That's fascinating. I had no idea about some of those food statistics, that it was as late as basically the late 70s, that kind of like you said, the environment around food portions and sizes, is it really changed? I would have maybe imagined earlier than that. I don't know. It just is kind of crazy.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, you know, before 1970s, virtually no country on the planet had an obesity rate above 15%. And today, almost no country on the planet has an obesity rate below 15%.
2: It's like, I I just kept thinking the meme that's like, well, that escalated quickly. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, like that's just not a lot of years when you really think about like the history of, you know, food, the world. Very quickly we have changed, you know, our entire eating style and then with it our health.
0: Yeah, and a lot of it was, you know, sort of good intentions. You know, back in 1979 when the first dietary guidelines came out, you know, it said Americans should eat less fat. And what did food companies do? They started coming out with low-fat, you know, salad dressing, low-fat mayonnaise and and they, they gave us all of these options that were lower in fat, and that's kind of what you would hope they would do. The problem is then our brains got involved, and our brains think, if a low-fat cookie is good for me, the entire bag will be great. <laughs> yeah. And all yeah. of a sudden, you know, because low-fat doesn't mean low-calorie, and right. so, you know, our brains allow us to be very easily misled into things that actually turn out to be not so good for us. And these are sort of some of the same challenges in terms of communication and behavior and psychology that are relevant, you know, to the ag conversation as well. Sort of understanding all of how the mind works is helpful for everybody in, you know, how they engage with others.
1: Hi, friends. Tara here. We want to encourage you to apply for our new in-person offering, Elevate the Summit. The summit is a two-day in-person mastermind. It will be focused specifically on you, the business owner, and whatever it is that you are specifically needing help with in your business. Maybe it's a roadblock like we helped Marissa with in episode eight, or product building like we did with Ashley in episode three, or offer assessment with Michelle. Whatever it is, the summit is your answer. This will be a small group mastermind with no more than 10 women being accepted so that it can be less coaching and more hands-on business development. Think lots of discussions, networking, and deep conversations. There will also be a guest coach and a guest speaker. And that's just at the retreat. Pre-retreat, you will also have one call and post-retreat, you will have two follow-up one-on-one coaching calls with Natalie and me to continue to implement your business plan and one final group coaching call. So for a total of four coaching calls and an in-person, you will also have access to our entire Elevate Ag Path 2 course, a $999 value. That's 19 modules and 14 guest interviews on everything from monetizing on multiple platforms to -to direct-to-consumer beef, and advocating for agriculture. If this summit sounds like what you've been needing in your business, apply at our website, elevateyouragstory.com forward slash summit. Spots are limited and the deadline to apply is July 25th. We can't wait to mastermind with you. So getting into the farming side of things, I think about this conversation, like you said earlier, like we're... We, you know, restaurants, you're going to give people what they want. Farmers are going to do the same. We give people what they want. I think the issue that I'm seeing right now is obviously a lot of like fear based marketing or marketing tactics that, as farmers, we're like, okay, people want whatever it is they want, you know, non GMO or they want antibiotic free. And we're like, okay, we can give it to them. We can give it to them at a premium price. Like, in my mind, though, at what point do we need to? maybe sometimes say no on some of these things and say, actually, like, there's good reason why we use whatever technology it is, whatever it is that you want to, you know, use as an example, as farmers, is there a time we need to say no, and be like, actually, we use that tool for a reason. This is why and try to do a better job of like bringing people along, like in educating them, helping them understand agriculture. Like, I just think we're, we're too programmed right now to just be like, Oh, this is what the consumer wants, we can give it to them.
0: Well, I—I I mean, I think that somebody will give it to them. So, you know, whether some farmers say they're not going to do it, um, you know, if—if if it gives a premium to the—the the farmer, you know, my view is, you know, why not take advantage of it? But I—I I do think more has to do with when we sort of buy into a—a a vision that ultimately undermines consumer confidence. So, like when you offer a gluten-free product, knowing that. The product doesn't actually none of the products have gluten you know like gluten-free eggs or gluten-free water or other things that you can find you're you're really contributing to sort of a consumer concern about their the food supply and i think that has longer term consequences part of the challenge i think we have in all of this is that consumers and farmers tend to think about sustainability differently. For most consumers, when they think about sustainability, they think about less fertilizer, less insecticide, less pesticides equals more sustainable. And you know, that might be true for that specific farm because it's going to have a lower environmental impact, but I think as, you know, most of your listeners know, that generally means that you produce less. And if you produce less, somebody else has to fill the gap. And so that's what I refer to as local sustainability. So, you know, fewer inputs means that it the local sustainability is greater, but the impacts are global because you're going to have indirect land use change someplace else. Whereas for most producers, they're thinking of like the more intensively I farm, the less demand there is for land in other places or, you know, farmland. And so I consider that global sustainability. So the, the benefits are global, but the impacts are local. And consumers see local impacts they don't see global benefits and so there's this it's really more of a continuum between local and global sustainability and that's part of what we really need to communicate to the consumer is the trade-off between the two you know it's it's not necessarily a bad thing to have you know hormone-free milk or other things but if the entire system look like that then it might actually it might not actually be delivering the benefits the consumer wants because the consumer wants less deforestation, too, when they say sustainability, but they're thinking local sustainability, but they don't understand the connection to global sustainability. And so as an industry, as a sector, we need to do a better job of communicating those trade-offs. You know they, they both bring benefits and they both bring you know, um, challenges, and we need to be able to articulate that and understand when should we be using one and when should we be using the other.
2: So this is when if I was in the crowd in one of your speeches, I would just be like nodding and clapping and like recording (laughs) you right now, because this little tidbit you said right here, I think is so important and Tara and I have this conversation all the time about local versus global. And I feel like you put it so simply that part of the problem is that farmers and consumers think of sustainability differently. And I feel like that's almost what I don't want to say like pits us against each other, but it's definitely where the friction comes from, because we feel like we're being sustainable. They want a different form of sustainability and it's both sustainable. It's just like you said, it's about having discussion and conversation around the trade-offs. And I feel like no one is doing that properly.
0: Yeah. And, and that tension is a good thing. You know, I, you know, I have to admit that, you know, when I started 20 years ago, talking about these issues, I was pretty skeptical of the benefits of organic farming and mostly because, you know, I was dealing with food security in Africa and, you know, I, was very much focused on that global sustainability question and felt like, you know, organic is a luxury of uh, certain individuals and what i came to realize though is that organic farmers are solving problems in ways that sort of the larger, you know, more industrial or modern farmers wouldn't and that that can be a good thing. You know, the many farmers today are using cover crops and they're doing it though because, you know, 20 years ago an organic farmer believed in her heart it was the right thing to do. And then big data came along and actually proved it right. And once the larger farmer understood that they could get a return on the investment, they began to, you know, trial and see if it worked on their farm. And as soon as they tried to do that, well, then larger seed companies said, well, you know what, I can give you a better cover crop. And so, you know, it's that transfer of ideas. So I see that, you know, organic in many ways is like a test bed for new ideas that would never have been thought of by that larger food system or the larger corporations. Um, but then they can be scaled more quickly by moving them over to the larger farms than by expanding organic production itself. And so, you know, I see them a little bit differently than I did, you know, earlier in my career.
1: That's such a great point. I was talking to a hoof trimmer once randomly enough about, um, at like, activists. And one activist group that he had encountered Um, actually, like, suggested some things. I mean, they were not an extremist group. They were actually just wanting to, like, work within agriculture. But um, they had some ideas for how you could bring cows into the hoof trimming shoe. And he said it has improved his job vastly because the cows come in more relaxed, more calm. So I mean, sometimes these back and forth conversations can be good. I I agree with you that I think there, when you are kind of going back and forth, there's new ideas coming to the table. I think it's, again, like going to the very beginning of our conversation, it's about communicating and how we're talking to each other, and how we're approaching these conversations, that really, it either ends up we, you know, can come to agreements, find commonalities, or we end up like more pitted against each other and and just finding that like balance there. So before
2: moving on, I want to have one more, I guess, conversation around these conversations, because in my mind, I almost see this (laughs) using the word conversation a lot. But I feel like we've been discussing two conversations as farmers, one that we need to have with consumers, but one we also need to have with with each other. Do you see one more important than the other obviously we need to be having both. I guess kind of, I'm just curious about your opinions about us as farmers, you know, again, having that ability to to learn and grow from each other, but also not forgetting to bring the consumer along with, the, you know, the whole journey.
0: Well, I think, you know, all of us need to listen more and, you know, complain less about, you know, what others are doing. I think we all have that tendency to want to, you know, point out what others are doing wrong instead of sort of trying to understand and learn. I think over time. Farmers, you know, do a wildly better job, as I, I previously said. But I think learning from each other is something that they have done more of. I think understanding how to engage with consumers and food companies is a newer challenge, and so you know, probably needs a little bit more concerted effort to you know figure out how to do that in a way that you know benefits everyone.
2: Okay, so switching just a little bit, um, another jackism. <laughs> I like how I just created this word. I've heard you say before is that people have never cared more and known less about where their food comes from. Can we maybe dive into how we're kind of in this unique position in history right now that we have, you know, how we can use this to our benefit as, you know, farmers and producers right now?
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, you go back 10,000 years and we were all, you know, farmers or ranchers or something. And, you know, now it's such a small percentage of the population that, you know, for for many people that are living in cities, you know, they, they probably think they know a lot about it because they care a lot about it. But, you know, they're not necessarily the same things. And if people don't understand how food is produced, then the things that they ask for in their food may or may not deliver The benefits that you know they're interested in, so so that's why I think it's particularly important that you know we help consumers to you know understand not just what they're interested in, but you know really what the consequences are. And I don't like to think of it as you know that they're wrong. I like to think of it as you know there there are choices and consequences, and that there's no sort of good or bad food. It's just you know choosing one type of production you know is going to have one set of implications, and choosing another one is going to be different and if you don't understand the implications then that's where the the challenge is you know then if you if you understand the implications then you know then we all sort of have a right to make our own choices about the food we eat and so it's helping to you know bring some of that clarity to it and i think people are interested in learning that information today and so that's where i think that opportunity comes into it consumers are very interested in you know who's producing the food and how it's produced and you know that's an opportunity that for transparency and transparency then can deliver you know premiums and quality that farmers and ranchers can take advantage of and so you know that interest can translate into you know economic benefits to the producer
1: so looking to the future, I mean, you're, you know, obviously your entire focus is kind of the future of food, as we've been saying, what does that future look like? What is the next, you know, everyone says the next 30 years looking to 2050. Obviously, there's a lot of goals set for 2050 as far as like environmental sustainability practices um, and reductions, as well as our growing population. So what does the next 30, well, now, I mean, it's what 27 years, um, look like until we reach 2050?
0: Yeah. And for some, you know, 2050 may seem arbitrary, you know, just because it's the middle of the century. But, you know, in in many ways, it's a really important date because the global population will reach, you know, sort of its peak sometime after 2050 and certainly probably not, you know, in 2100. And so what's interesting is that, you know, part of the challenge that we have is that population is growing quickly. And as population grows, then, you know, you have to produce more and more every year but population growth is not going to continue forever. And as it slow begins to slow, and it's going to begin to slow after the turn of the century, things will get easier. So I like to say that every day between now and 2050, it gets harder to feed the world. But every day after 2050, it's going to get easier, assuming we haven't cut down our forest and drained our rivers, our lakes, and aquifers. So if those things still exist, in many ways, we will be good forever. So that's part of my message is that, you know, we've got this huge challenge in front of us, but if we're successful and, you know, and that's within just a single generation, you know, we're, we're good forever. And for me, that's an incredibly, incredibly hopeful uh, message and opportunity. And the other is that I think that when uh, many in the farming community today think about the future of food, they think of, you know, people that are saying, you know, we should eliminate uh, animal agriculture and they, they find it, you know, very uh, threatening that future. And when I look ahead, and I just do some really simple math, again, I see opportunity, because between now and 2050, we will probably need double the amount of protein uh, produced in 2050 that we do today. And you know, that's a two trillion dollar industry today, growing to three to four trillion by 2050, and that's a remarkable opportunity. And so. If a hundred percent of that growth came from alternative proteins and plant-based proteins and lab-grown meat and other things, it wouldn't cause the elimination of a single head of cattle, right? We would still need all of the animal protein today that we, you know, then that we do today. And that's incredibly unlikely that any of these other sectors are going to grow to a two trillion dollar industry in just, you know, less than 30 years. So The challenge is, or the question isn't, you know, will animal agriculture disappear? The question is, how much of this growing pie will it have? And so, you know, that's not a competition over disappearing. That's just a competition over, you know, success. And I think that, you know, that again helps to frame this a little bit differently. It's how can we make animal ag better so that it has less of an impact in 2050? But also, how can it contribute to that sustainable and nutritious future that we all want?
1: That is part of your speech is always just so thought provoking for me. I just think it it shows how much opportunity there really is and that we need to be being just on the cutting edge and keeping up with consumer, you know, wants and, and just the trends going on. And then from the farming side of things, like having, thinking about the next generation, like I just think about the next 30 years for me will be most of my like working adult career. That'll put me at, you know, 65, basically in 30, 30 years from now, it'll put my daughter at 35. Um, And so it's like, it just, it's wild to think about how different her adult years will be in farming if if she chooses to go into it or whoever the next generation of farmers are compared to the one that like we're currently in. Um, It just, it's just, I don't know. I don't think I have any like major takeaways. It's just something to really like gets me thinking of how different things could be and what, what farming will look like post 2050.
0: Yeah, I I was having a conversation with a couple of uh, teams that were looking at the future of food for the, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation Food Vision Prize, one team from Europe and another from China. And and they both had it as part of their vision that they were going to reduce animal agriculture by 30% by 2050. And I, I was one of the mentors for the group. And I said, if that's your vision, then you can expect the the livestock industry to fight you because nobody wants to go out of business. But the companies that would support you, they don't exist yet. Because they, you know, they just haven't been built. If instead your vision was to reduce the environmental impact of protein production by 30%, well, that's something everybody can get on board with. And so, you know, just a tweak in how they talk about what they're trying to achieve is the difference between people trying to kill your idea and people trying to get on board with it. And, you know, that's really my goal is how do we reframe these conversations to show that we actually have a lot more in common than than we may think.
2: So, Jack, why do you think, I mean, the Rockefeller, that's obviously a huge, you know, foundation. Why do you think people are so fixated on this idea of removing, you know, animal agriculture as part of the solution? Like where, do you think it just comes from rhetoric or like, I just don't understand why everyone thinks that's the solution?
0: Well, I think it's because you know, they they look at the problems today and they look at the cause of those problems. And they, you know, so if you were to look at eutrophication of waterways, you know, in the United States or the, you know, the algal blooms in the Gulf or deforestation, I mean, you know, each of those can be tied to sort of large scale agriculture. And so they look around and they say, well, all of the problems I see are caused by this current system. So we need to have a new system. And What that fails to do is it fails to look at, like again, where we've come from. If you were to look at the resources necessary to produce a bushel of corn in America today, there are 35% fewer greenhouse gas emissions to produce that uh, bushel. There's 40% less land needed to produce it, 50% less water, and 60% less erosion on that land. So by every measure, again, things are just wildly better. And that would be true for cotton and canola and soy and other things. But You know, most consumers just and most conservation organizations just don't see that because they just see the more corn. They don't see the better corn. And, you know, so that's that's part of, you know, the reason that I joined the Nature Conservancy, which is the world's largest conservation organization, because it's been working since 1951 with farmers and ranchers to help them figure out ways of um, improving the conservation on their land while also improving the bottom line. So as an organization, it's very much focused on the idea that if conservation practices don't provide a return on the investment for the farmer and rancher, then it's just not going to work. And so they you know spend a lot of time working in 76 countries around the world trying to find those win-wins. And I think that as organizations, it's one of the few that really gets the fact that if we can help to make farmers successful, if people are sustainably new and nutritiously fed, they won't need to go in and cut down for us.
1: I'm so glad you brought up your work and your, your new position there because I wanted to get into that of, you know, so maybe you can expand a little bit more. Like what um, do you have anything currently you're working on that you'd like to share or just what is, what is your day to day role look like in that position?
0: Yeah, so I'm I'm on the global team, so I'm I'm looking at global food and water policy. Uh, The largest part of the organization is here in the United States, where the organization was started. But they're working in Brazil and Europe and you know many countries around the world. And one of the things that's interesting about them is that you know they're happy to partner with industry in order to make things better. So you know they partner with PepsiCo to figure out how to site their facilities. To ensure that it has uh, doesn't have a negative impact on water, you know, for other communities, and so you know they're they're working with them to figure out where is the best place to put this facility, you know, or you know again working with farmers and ranchers on you know how do we uh, improve water quality without undermining the bottom line, and you know an, an example of how that could be different, you know, when you know I mentioned eutrophication of waterways, and you know obviously um, nutrients in water are a problem. And so conservation groups sort of look at that and say, you know, farmers are the problem. But when the nature conservancy looks at it, they think, well, nutrients in the water is money out of the pocket of the farmer. And so the interests are actually 100% aligned because the farmer doesn't want to lose the nutrients and the conservation doesn't want it in the water. So, you know, for us, that's an opportunity for collaboration. It's not a reason for uh, conflict. Now we might disagree about how to get there, but it's an organization that thinks sort of uh, out of the box, you know, about how to solve things like this. And just as an example, the city of Des Moines spends like five million a year to take those nutrients out of the water. Well, in a sense, that's a five million dollar bucket of money that could be used to keep the nutrients from getting in the water. So, you know, maybe there's a way of working with farmers. So if they plant hedgerows or they, you know, don't uh, farm all the way to their field margins, that you know you can compensate them for not doing that and once you do that and then once they see well once you have that field margin you probably keep more of the nutrients on your farm and so maybe you don't actually need as much money to compensate as you thought because maybe you are spending less on uh, inputs so you know they work with the farmers in order to do the math and you know do the on-farm calculations to see how do we get to that win-win scenario and when do farmers need incentives and when does doing the more environmentally friendly thing actually provide a return on investment for that farmer.
2: Yeah. For anyone that's listening, um, I'm glad we got into this because we actually work really closely with our local NRCS and they've been really amazing for us um, as producers. Tara, do you guys do any work with,
1: with your local? I have, um, worked with the NRCS, local NRCS a ton, especially as my role like an environmental consultant. Um, a big part of my job was helping farmers through the NRCS process, equip funding, looking for other options out there. Um, and so definitely it's always worth anytime I get asked about this, it's like it's worth checking into what options are out there and what kind of help you can financial support you can get, whether it be grants or something like EQIP to help you with these sustainability conservation efforts.
2: Yeah, we've done just a lot on our operation with them and just, I mean, a wide variety. So anyone who's listening that hasn't ever worked with or reached out to, like Tara said, I think it's definitely worth inquiring into to see what changes you can maybe make that obviously betters your operation. Kind of like Jack said, it's like a win-win for both because it. I do think our, I even think the goals obviously for everyone has the same goals. It's just, we all <laughs> have a different conversation about how we should get there.
0: Yep, yeah, Absolutely. I was in Ohio a couple of months ago, and I had a chance to spend some time with the president of the Ohio Farm Bureau. And I was surprised he couldn't say enough nice things about the relationship they have with the Nature Conservancy on watersheds, you know, that they were able to work together in order to improve water quality and was something that was, you know, very beneficial to, you know, the farmers, but also to the the people in the state. And I I think there's a, a... sort of a gut reaction that, you know, conservation organizations are the enemy. And I think if we can find more ways of, you know, working together, we can probably get to that better place more quickly than if we approach it as an adversarial relationship.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing I always like to tell people when we're having conversations about conservation is I drink the exact same water as our cows, like literally the tank that fills the cows water troughs, we drink at our house. So it's obviously the groundwater right below our dairy. So it's like, why wouldn't I want to protect groundwater, like, just a basic human need having children wanting to have good quality water. So our goals are all the same, good quality water. It's just how can we do it? And how can it be economically feasible? uh, And we still stay in business like these are just the basics. It's just the conversations around getting there.
0: Yep. Yeah. And that's moving that conversation to should to could, not telling people what they should do, but, you know, talking to them about what they could do to make their operation better.
2: I thought we'd maybe end with, Jack, I've heard you talk before that sustainability is not a destination, it's a journey. And so if maybe we could just kind of talk about, you know, how, I guess that, that just that little statement in and of itself about, you know, what we can do to move forward, you know, as producers.
0: Yeah, well, I think, <laughs> so yeah, the, the statement, you know, I, I I don't think of sustainability as a, a destination that there's no such thing as sustainable agriculture. And that's because agriculture today is more sustainable than it was last year and it will be more sustainable next year. But I also think that, you know, for many, you know, farmers and ranchers, they may roll their eyes when they hear all of these sustainability metrics and other things. And I think that's unfortunate because they're actually not giving themselves credit for the sustainability practices they've put into place over the last 50 years. And, you know, I already mentioned how much better water and erosion and all these things. And, and they would probably say, well, you know, that's not sustainability, that's good business. And, you know, it turns out that good business and sustainability, you know, actually look a lot alike. And that, you know, I think that's why it's important to sort of recognize that many of the things that the farming community are already doing. Fit squarely in the box of sustainability and that they should be getting credit for it and not feel like they're being threatened uh, because of it. But also, when we're looking to the future, if you look at data from organizations like the World Resources Institute, they talk about, well, what will it take to have a sustainable future? And what was striking for me is, you know, they talk about reducing food waste and shifting diets and lots of things like that. But two thirds of the improvements in our food system. That must occur by 2050 to get to that sustainable future will occur based on business as usual. In other words, the work that farmers and ranchers and scientists and seed companies are doing every day will get us two thirds of the way to the future they want, even if they did nothing.
2: Can you and... say that? I'm sorry. Can you say that again? <laughs> what was the, pr- sure. can you just say that again? <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, you know, they've got their uh, menu of change that they talk about that's, you know, sort of the list of like all the things that need to happen to get to that sustainable future by 2050. And so, you know, it's broken down to all these pieces. Well, if we could reduce food waste, if we could shift some diets, if we could do different things, then that would help each of those pieces would get us to that sustainable future. But when you look at the chart, there's like this big green bar that's 61% of getting to that sustainable future. And then you look at what it the definition of that bar and it says historic improvements in agriculture oh my you know two-thirds of what we need to get to a sustainable future will occur based on farmers and ranchers just doing what they do every day because it's good business and you know that's why for me what's remarkable is that they'll get us two-thirds of the way there by 2050 if conservation organizations did nothing so that's why i feel like our job is not to blame them for not doing a hundred percent of what we need. My goal is to figure out what can I do to get us there faster? Things are not bad and getting worse. They're good and getting better, but not fast enough. What can we do to help?
1: Oh my gosh. I love that. It's, I mean, it's just so true. Like I think about the stats for dairy for the last 75 years and the improvements. And when people, when I talk with people and they say, how do you know you can get, get to your goals by 2015? And it's like, because we have a track record of already improving and it's exactly what you said. I just, I love that there's actually like statistics out there showing that a big portion of getting us to 2050 is content, just making those every year improvements and continuing to just do a little bit better. And then by working together, we can get that last percentage.
0: Yeah. And, you know, instead of saying, oh, it's baked into our assessment, it's like, well, no, we need to give credit <laughs> to the people that are going to do that because, you know, it, it doesn't just automatically happen. It happens because people work every day to make the system better.
2: Well, Jack, thank you so much for that insightful and just important conversation and all the work you're doing. Do you want to maybe plug yourself a little bit for our listeners who you know, want to follow along more with your journey or just get more access to you?
0: Well, um, I would say that if anybody wants to connect with me, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Always happy to expand my network. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Jack underscore a underscore Bobo. uh, if somebody wants to follow me and, you know, I look forward to, you know, engaging with people. So if, you know, somebody disagrees with something I've said, let me know if they agree with something and there's something we can do together. Let me know.
1: Thank you to Jack Bobo for coming on our advocacy podcast today. If you want to learn more about Jack and the work he is doing, make sure you check our show notes. We'll link to all of the details there. And
2: don't forget, we love connecting with you guys. So if you found today's episode valuable in your advocacy efforts, we would love it if you would screenshot and share to your story something you took away from today's conversation. You can also subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review to help more advocate entrepreneurs
1: find our podcast. Thank you and we'll see you on Thursday.